There was a children's book that was written back in the 70s titled Alexander in the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. How many of you have read that book? It was one of my favorites to read when I was a kid. Uh, Alexander is an elementary school age, and he's the narrator of the book. It's a short little book, and it's got great illustrations. And here's how the book begins. Alexander says, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard. And by mistake, I dropped my sweater into the sink while the water was running, and I could just tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony, who was one of his brothers, found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. And Nick, his other brother, found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. And that's kind of the, his response all throughout the book to his having this kind of a day is that he's just going to move to Australia. I always thought it was a clever title, and uh, it's one that I personally have, have thought a lot about uh, at different occasions through my life when I'm having a less than stellar day. But what about you? Like Alexander, have you ever had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? And I'm not, I'm not talking about just a bad day because we all have bad days. I'm talking about a terrible, horrible no good, very bad day. You know, I've been in this role at Southside for long enough to know that many of you have had days like that. And I'm so sorry that you've had to experience days like that. My heart goes out to you. My heart aches for you. You know, it's, it's, part, of, it's part of living in a world that is fallen. It's part of living in these in-between times. But here's the good news. Jesus is coming back. Maybe today. He's coming back, and he's going to make everything right. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sorrows. There'll be no more death, no more illness, no more sin. I promise you that day is coming. The very last prayer in all of Scripture is found in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20, and it's come, Lord Jesus. We pray that that day will come soon. But until that day comes, how do we live in these days, especially when these days are bad days? I thought about titling in my lesson today, Paul in the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. But then I decided that was just too long and it wouldn't fit on the church center app. Yet, that's exactly 
how I would describe the kind of day that Paul's having here in Acts chapter 16. If you recall from last week, Paul and his companions are in Philippi. There's no synagogue for them to attend. They recognize that preaching on a street corner will get them in trouble and thrown in the prison, so they learn about a place of prayer that's outside of the city walls, that's kind of away from the city, down by the river. On a previous Sabbath day, they had gone to that place of prayer and met Lydia. So in verse 16 of Acts 16, they're they're headed back to this place of prayer. Again, kind of away from the city, outside the hustle and bustle of the city, when along the way, they meet a slave girl. And this slave girl, as we learned last week, has the spirit of a python. Now, this girl follows them around everywhere they go, shouting, these men are the servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And we're not real sure why Paul didn't just address her situation on day one, but Luke tells us that it went on for many days. You know, I I just, I don't think they're looking for trouble. I really don't think Paul's looking for trouble here in Philippi. I think he's a smart guy, and I think he knows that if he sets this girl free from the Spirit, trouble's coming. Sure enough, one morning as they head out for the day, they're once again met by this slave girl who starts following them around and shouting when finally Paul becomes so troubled, not only by her message, but by her situation, that he turns around and he actually performs a deed of of kindness towards this girl. It's It's an act of great compassion and mercy towards this enslaved girl. And in the name of Jesus, he commands the spirit to leave her, and it does. And this deed of kindness backfires on him. And so begins the story of Paul and his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. There's actually a really cool wordplay here in the Greek that I want to tell you about. Scholars think that Luke deliberately repeats a word in verse 18 and verse 19 to emphasize what has occurred. At the end of verse 18 reads, at that moment, the spirit left her. And then Luke uses the very same verb in verse 19 when he, when he writes, when the owners of the slave girl realized their hope of making money left them. So it's the same verb. When the spirit left her, their hope of making money left them. You see, that's all this girl was to the owners. She was just property. She was literally their hope of making money. And now all their hope was gone. And people people who lose hope typically do not respond well. And these owners of this slave girl are no exception. Because they seize Paul and Silas, they drag him into the marketplace to face the authorities. They bring them before the Roman magistrates who are typically only available at the beginning of the day. So this is most likely 
you know, the, the hustle bustle of the morning around 9 a.m. There's lots of people out and about. And listen to this charge that they bring against them because it has nothing to do with what just happened to the slave girl. These men do not bring the details of their situation to the Roman magistrates. Their charge has nothing to do with the slave girl. Instead, they go before these officials whose sole responsibility was to keep order in the city, and they look to stir up trouble, as much trouble as possible. This is not a good example of the Roman legal system at work. In verse 20, here's the charge they bring. They say, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating Customs unlawful for us Romans to accept a practice. This charge against Paul and Silas is definitely racial in manner. So there's racial prejudice that Paul has to face here against the Jews in this proud Roman province. You know, I think the primary reason we know this to be true is because only part of the missionary team is actually brought before the magistrates. We know that this missionary team is made up of four men, Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. But only Paul and Silas are brought before the magistrates. Why? Because they're the only ones that are Jews. Luke's a full-blooded Gentile. Timothy, we know to be half Gentile. So Paul and Silas here experiencing racial prejudice. These men are Jews, shouts the owners of the slave girl. And that's men is a bad thing. They're not just letting people know their nationality. In addition, there's a false accusation made here. The men tell the Roman magistrates that Paul and city. Paul and Silas are throwing our city into an uproar. Well, we know that's not the case. We know that they've been going outside the city walls to speak with people. They're not throwing the city into an uproar, but these men knew that was the charge that would get the attention of these magistrates. And then lastly, they experienced religious persecution. These men tell the magistrates that Paul and Silas are advocating for their religious customs, which are unlawful for us, us proud Romans, to accept or practice. So there's racial prejudice, there's false legal accusation, there's religious persecution, all wrapped up into what's happening here in this one charge. Then in verse 22, we see that the crowd has joined in the attack. In other words, a mob has formed. And so the magistrates now have to act. They quickly have to move into a mode of keeping peace, keeping order, keeping a riot from happening. And so here's how the Romans went about doing that. They strip Paul and Silas, right there in the marketplace. This is public humiliation 101, something that the Romans were well known for. And then Paul and Silas were beaten with rods. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 
Paul would write, three times I was beaten with rods. That's unbelievable. Three times. This is the first of the three times. Roman soldiers would just gather around these stripped men huddled together in the public marketplace, and they would just beat them with rods mercilessly all over their entire bodies. And if that wasn't enough, that wasn't humiliating enough, then, Luke tells us, Paul and Silas were severely flogged. Many of you are familiar with the practice of flogging in the first century. The Romans would use a whip made of several strips of leather into which were embedded just right near the ends, pieces of bone, lead, glass. Now, the Jews would limit the number of times, the number of stripes to a maximum of 40, but not the Romans. The Romans had no such limitation. Typically, victims of Roman flogging did not survive. And Luke tells us that Paul and Silas were severely flogged. Verse 23, after this, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them very carefully. Upon receiving his orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, to be put in the inner cell would have been to receive the worst of a prison accommodations. The inner cell is another term for maximum security. It would have been reserved for only the lowest and the worst of criminals. It's the Alcatraz of Philippi. He and Silas would be chained up to murderers and hardened felons. And to top it all off, Paul and Silas are put in the stocks. Now, if you're not familiar with stocks, stocks were instruments of torture that caused extreme discomfort because the prisoner had to remain in a sitting position with their arms stretched out like this at all times. Have you ever tried to sleep at night in this position? With lacerations all over your body? In the foulest of places? With insects burrowing into your open wounds because you can't swat them away? sitting in your own excrement, nothing to eat or drink. Listen again as I read the first few words of our text this morning in verse 25. 
about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. These words should cause you to pause. They should grab your attention. Whatever else you've been thinking about, these words should make you stop in your tracks in order to ponder what you are witnessing on these pages. How can these two men be praying and singing hymns to God after the day they've had. How are they singing and praying in these conditions? I love what Luke writes next. He says, the other prisoners... We're listening to them. The other prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas had their full attention. These hardened criminals had never listened to anyone in their lives, ever. They didn't listen to their parents, they didn't listen to their teachers. They had never listened to the authorities, but they listened to Paul and Silas praying, singing. Even they have to be wondering, how is this possible? How is it possible to be singing in the midst of so much suffering? There's only one way it's possible. And Paul and Silas are going to tell the jailer how it's possible in verse 31. Now, it's a summary statement that they will expound on in verse 32, but here it is. How is it possible to be singing in the midst of so much suffering? Here it is. Belief in the Lord Jesus. That's it. That's the only way. When you've had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, when the earth beneath your feet is shaking and the whole world is falling down around you, how is it possible for you to make it through the night? Here it is, belief in the Lord Jesus. That's it. That's the only way. And what Paul and Silas teach us is that belief in the Lord Jesus will not only help you make it through the night, but it will strengthen and encourage your heart to prayer and song. Now, as I said, belief in the Lord Jesus is just a summary statement. 
In verse 32, Luke tells us that they speak the word about the Lord to him and all the others in the house. So they expound on this summary statement, and they speak to them words about the Lord. And that's what I want to do uh, in our remaining time this morning, is speak some words to you about the Lord, about this belief in the Lord Jesus. I want to expound on that summary statement, if you will here in our time remaining together. When I say belief in the Lord Jesus, what comes to your heart and your mind? What do you think about? How do you hear that statement? What does it, what does it really mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? As we think about that this morning, I want to share with you two ways that I've seen people think about belief in the Lord Jesus that I'm going to encourage you to not think in those ways again. And then I want to share with you a very powerful way to think about belief in the Lord Jesus, that I want to encourage you to think about belief in the Lord Jesus in that way a way that I think will really encourage you and inspire you. But first, the two ways that I have seen that people understand belief in the Lord Jesus that I think are ways that are not good to think about belief and are even harmful to us. The first is this. Belief in the Lord Jesus is not about assurance. Belief in the Lord Jesus is not about assurance. Belief in the Lord Jesus does not assure you of good health and lots of wealth. Paul didn't mean if you just believe in Jesus, then everything will always go well for you. Look. If Paul, if the life of Paul teaches us anything, it's that belief in Jesus does not exempt us from having terrible, horrible, very bad, no good days. Remember, this was just the first of three times Paul would be beaten with rods. In fact, Jesus is the one who says, in this world, you will have trouble. So belief in the Lord Jesus is not about assurance. Also, belief in the Lord Jesus is not about an amount. It's not about an amount. Paul didn't mean that you need to have a certain amount of belief. He didn't mean that the reason he can sing while suffering is because he has so much belief. And if you would just have a little more belief, then you could sing while suffering too. It's not about an amount. Do you remember when Jesus says to his closest disciples, he only says this to his closest ones, he says, oh, you of little faith. You remember when he said that? He's not referring to an amount. He's meaning their faith is little, like it's young. 
They've spent little time with him. There's still so much for them to learn. There's still so much for them to believe about who he is. It's what they believe about him that's little, but it has, it has nothing to do with an amount. And Jesus sets the record straight on this when he says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. The point of the teaching of the mustard seed is that faith has nothing to do with an amount. You see, belief is not subjective, meaning it's not about the subject who has the belief. You have very little belief. Paul has a lot of belief. Belief is not subjective. Belief is objective, meaning it's about the object of your belief. It's about what you believe. It's not about how much you believe. So belief in the Lord Jesus is not about an amount. So what is it about? It's about what you believe. What's a better way of understanding belief in the Lord Jesus? It's not assurance. It's not an amount. It's all about allegiance. Because you see, it's about what you believe. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Belief in the Lord Jesus is all about allegiance to Jesus as the Lord. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? You see, what's so beautiful about being able to see how this jailer responds is that this jailer's allegiance had been to Rome, to the orders of the Roman magistrates. He was so allegiant to Rome. He was a good soldier. When he wakes up and thinks the prisoners have all escaped, he draws the sword to kill himself, not because he's having suicidal thoughts, but because that's what a good soldier does. A good soldier under Roman authority, that's what you've been trained to do. He's allegiant to Rome. So when Paul tells the jailer to believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, he's telling this jailer to transfer his allegiance from the Roman emperor and to the Lord Jesus. What's so awesome about being able to see his response here is that he does it immediately. He no longer is a servant to the magistrates of the Roman emperor, but now he becomes a servant to these missionaries of the Lord Jesus. He washes their wounds, brings them into his home, and sets a meal before them. You need to know that all of these acts that he performs for Paul and Silas would be punishable by death if his allegiance were still to Rome. 
In addition, he and all his family are baptized. You know, baptism is a public act of submission. And through this act, the jailer and his entire household, they transfer their allegiance from the emperor of Rome to the Lord Jesus. Most likely in the same waters where he washed the wounds of Paul and Silas, the jailer and his entire household receive the washing that comes only from the Lord Jesus. So let me ask again, how is it possible to be singing in the midst of so much suffering? There's only one answer. Belief in the Lord Jesus. And by belief, it's not about assurance. It's not about an amount. It's about allegiance to the sovereign Lord of the universe. It's about allegiance to the one who sits enthroned on the right hand of his father. It's about allegiance to the one who lives and reigns and who is in charge of all things. It's only possible to sing in the midst of suffering when one believes that Jesus is the king. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning as a church family, and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we... We acknowledge you as the head of this body. We submit our lives to you. We pledge our allegiance to you. Jesus, we, we ask that from the right hand of the Father, you pour out your Holy Spirit into this church, into the hearts and the lives of your people. Lord, I know that some of us today are having terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. We come alongside those and we bring them to you, Jesus. We bring them to you and we speak your name into their lives. Jesus, we ask that you will strengthen them that you will support them, that you will encourage them, 
Jesus, we ask that you will change, that you will bring healing, that you will bring wholeness into their lives. Jesus, we thank you for being the Lord. We thank you for being our king. We can go out these doors and into our weeks and face no matter what comes our way because we believe that you are Lord. So strengthen us in that belief. We give you our weeks. Pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This morning, I want to offer uh, an invitation uh, to anyone who might be here this morning who has not made the public declaration of Jesus being your king. We'd love to be a part of that this morning. For you to come and put Jesus on in baptism, to say that Jesus is your Lord, Savior of your life. We'd love to be a part of that in your life today. And look, if you were to come, if that's something you haven't done, and you were to come up here and do that this morning, I'm not going to ask you the question, how much do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Because it's not about an amount. I'm going to ask you, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? It's a simple yes or no question because it's about who you put your belief in. It's about what you believe. Let me encourage you. There's nothing greater for us to believe as we go through our days than to believe that Jesus is our Lord, that he lives, that he reigns, that he's coming back. Does anybody like to respond this morning to that invitation? Let's do that. Let's stand and sing a song of invitation together.